Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Personally, I don't believe we were meant to go it alone in this life. We all need a friend. Some of us are blessed with siblings who double in life as best buds, like the Noguera brothers. Some are fortunate when siblings allow you to join their pack which is exactly what happened for the Nogueros' childhood neighbor, Mark Ardwen. On this week's Louisiana Eats, we'll sit down with the terrific trio to hear how food and music have deepened those bonds over the decades since they first met. And we'll visit with dynamic duo Kitten and Lou, real vaudevillians who are now gaining fame from their own Bywater front porch, where on weekends, you can stop by for a chance in hell snowball. These two have taken snowball flavors to a whole new height. We're going to warm your heart and then cool you down on this week's Louisiana Eats. As a lifelong New Orleanian, I thought I knew everything there was to know about snowballs, that summertime confection of shaved ice and flavored sugar syrup. My neighborhood snowball stand growing up was Plum Street, located just down South Carrollton Avenue from my childhood home. Many a bike ride ended up right there. I especially loved the way the large snowballs came in the same white paper boxes as takeout Chinese food was packed in. My favorite flavor? Half spearmint, half chocolate. No condensed milk necessary for me, thanks. While the classics never go out of style, there's one Bywater neighborhood pop-up that's been turning heads with their unique snowball collection. So I take the cup, I stab it. So the molding device shapes the snowball because we really we like them to kind of look like cartoon snowballs. So it makes them really gives them that like perfect round shape at the top. At Chance in Hell Snowballs, owners Kitten and Lou craft all their flavors with local ingredients and combinations you may never have heard of before. Flavors like cucumber, cardamom, basil, pick a pepper peach, or honey sage fig. Thank you, thank you. Joining a crowd of customers one afternoon, I stopped by their porch pop-up and sampled a snowball I will never forget. If anyone comes up and they're in a bad mood, they're not for very long. When they're not making snowballs, Kitten and Lou are full-time drag and cabaret performers, gracing the world's stages with their popular burlesque show. 
So how did they come to start a snowball stand? The couple joined us in the studio to share their story. Hi, I'm Kitten. And I'm Lou. And we are together, Kitten and Lou, the owners of Chance and Hell Snowballs. I really want to know more about Kitten and Lou, the entertainers. How long has this been going on? Well, we are a married couple and have been for almost 10 years now. Um, and before we met, we were solo entertainers. But then when we, when we met each other, we teamed up and became Kitten and Lou. And we've been touring the world as a burlesque drag duo ever since. We've been very fortunate that our career has taken us to... Australia and Europe and all over the place. Oh, I know that because I've been trying to get you in the studio and you're <laughs> telling me things like, oh, we've got to go to Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been uh, interesting juggling the, the showbiz with the snowbiz, but we are making it work and we kind of have fallen in love with both equally, to be honest. What is the act like? Tell us a little bit about what we might see at a Kitten and Lou experience. Well, we've been described as uh, a fluorescent Fred and Ginger. Oh. Yep, we've been described as the, the love child between vaudeville and club drag. So those are just some of our our press quotes that have described us. I think we're funny and surreal and... Um, campy and sweet <laughs> and we both have a dance background so we do a lot of dance as part of our act and we both love storytelling which I think is a real through line with snowballs and food as well but uh, yeah we love to tell stories with what we're doing so even if it's five minutes of dancing there's always there's always a story that we're telling and the snowball stand amazingly this is another one of those COVID-inspired businesses, huh? Absolutely. Yeah, Before the pandemic, we um, were full-time touring performers. But overnight, when COVID hit, all of our work was canceled. And we kind of always joked about if you know we were ever tired of this sort of jet-setting lifestyle, we should just open a little snowball shop. Ha-ha, wouldn't that be funny? And, of course, Kitten had a name for it all picked out already. Right. Because that's what we do in our spare time. Oh, well, it's a great name, Chance in Hell Snowballs. And, and uh, I, I guess that's what all y'all were really looking for at the time, huh? Exactly. A chance in hell. We, needed, we all needed a chance in hell in that moment. And so, you know, we all our work got canceled. And a, an old school secondhand snow wizard popped up in our world. And we just thought to ourselves, well, this is a sign from the universe. Let's just let's just get it. And we'll just make some snowballs for our neighbors. No big deal. It'll just be like a fun little project while we're waiting for the world to get back to normal. But you know how New Orleans is. If people like something, they tell 10 people. Then those 10 people tell 10 people. And before you know it, we had a, a line around the block. What were the first flavors? Because you see, so many people, they're going to open up a snowball stand. Well, you got the snow wizard machine. They're likely to just go over there and get that syrup. And then the snowballs taste like the snowball profile that we are all accustomed to. But that's not what you're doing. No, we we, we decided we wanted to make the kind of snowballs that we wanted to eat. And, you know, I, I'm, I grew up in Louisiana. I grew up eating snowballs. I'm, you know, fourth generation New Orleanian. And um, I love snowballs, but, you know, they I can only eat 
a few bites and they kind of give me a headache. And I just, I wanted to try making some snowballs with local seasonal ingredients and stuff in our backyard. And so our first flavors we had, I think, were lemon basil and um, thin mint, which is chocolate with mint from our backyard. And then we decided our house flavor was going to be the traditional New Orleans nectar cream. But we used an old school Italian grandma recipe that uses real vanilla and almond extracts. And, um, you know, I grew up eating nectar snowballs, so I just knew that that had to be a permanent fixture of our menu. Nectar. It, if pink was a flavor, exactly. that's what it would be, right? <laughs> and, you know, the timing was really sweet because so many people were gardening so much in that moment of the of the early days of the pandemic. So we had lots of neighbors who were suddenly growing herbs that they didn't know what to do with. And so it started then and has continued where we'll have neighbors just bring us a giant bag of basil or bring us a giant bag of mint or rosemary. And then we we just make a snowball flavor with just it. Just turn it into snowball magic. And, and you know, I'll, I'll, I did a flavor a couple weeks ago that was made with fig and, and rosemary. And it's like, well, this is made with rosemary from J.D.'s garden right around the corner. How did the neighborhood respond? What's it been like down there? It's It's been incredible, honestly. It was during during the shutdown, the lockdown, it was a true lifeline, not only for us, but for the neighborhood, I feel like. Um, and that's been a big part of why people love us so much. Obviously, I think we make great snowballs, but it truly became a community hub. You know, it was it was the thing that people looked forward to every weekend, and they all could come and just have a little piece of normalcy during those weird, weird times. Um, yeah. And, yeah. you know, we had some really sweet uh, first dates come to Aww. get snowballs on their first date. We had a couple have their first date getting a snowball during the pandemic, and then they got engaged at the snowball stand a year later. They brought us the ring, and we put it in the snowball for them. And then the day they got married, after their wedding, they came by and got a snowball. Yeah, right after the ceremony. And the snowball stand, when do you open? What month do you open up, and how long does it operate? Well, traditionally in New Orleans, snowball season is shortly after Mardi Gras, as we know, um, and runs through October. So we plan to, for the time being, keep those traditional hours. Currently, we are still on the porch at France and Burgundy, (laughs) which all of you who are in the know know about. However, we are beyond thrilled to announce that we have a permanent home locked down and we will be opening an actual storefront in Bywater. Is it going to be called Chance in Hell? And what's this experience going to be like? Absolutely. It's Chance in Hell. We will be Chance in Hell snowballs forever, but we will be Chance in Hell snowballs plus. So we're going to have a nice little uh, food menu with savory hand pies and stuff like that. And very exciting news is that we will have a liquor license. So if uh, any grownups want to come get a more adult snowball, you'll be able to do that as well. And where will the new spot be? The new spot is going to be at the corner of Dauphine and Louisa Street. That cool little corner spot that has those historic storefront windows that have been there since the 1800s. And the space is really cool because it's been, over the last, you know, 200 years, has been a saloon. It's been a tailor. It's been a baker. It's been all kinds of things. But it hasn't been a business for a while. We're excited to bring it back to its commercial glory and have a true neighborhood spot that locals and visitors alike can 
come and visit and have a little piece of New Orleans. In that old traditional New Orleans way, will you all be residing upstairs? Absolutely. Oh. We'll live upstairs, work downstairs. Thank you. I'm so tickled we got to sit down and have this little chat. And I'll be down to the corner of France and Burgundy soon. And see you next year on Louisa. Absolutely. Yeah. Come on by. That was Kitten and Lou of Chance in Hell Snowballs in New Orleans Bywater neighborhood. You can catch them on the corner of France and Burgundy Friday, Saturday, and Sundays from 2 till 7 p.m. right through Halloween. Check out their specials at Chance in Hell Snowballs on Instagram. Coming up next, we meet two brothers and their childhood neighbor whose lifelong friendships have often intersected with their shared passions for music and food. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now celebrating their centennial by donating one million bowls of beans to Second Harvest Food Bank. What a way to say thank you to the community they call home. To learn more and view the new video by award-winning documentary filmmaker Joe York, visit CamelliaBrand.com. What is it about New Orleans that makes local friendships last a lifetime? Crescent City childhood chums may weave in and out of neighborhoods as they navigate life, but those treasured relationships endure. 
our next guests' lifelong friendships have often intersected with their shared passions for music and food. My name is Alfredo Noguera. I'm the chef of Val's Canaan Table and Cure. Hi, I'm Juan Noguera. I'm Fredo's brother. I'm Mark Ardwin. I'm the store director at the Rouse's on Ferret Street. On the ever-changing Ferret Street corridor in New Orleans, two businesses providentially opened within a year of each other. A restaurant named Val's, which opened in 2020, and a Rouse's Market, which opened across the street from Val's in 2021. On one corner, Chef Fredo serves up tacos and Mexican dishes at Val's, while Mark oversees operations at the corner grocery store across the street. The two joke about being neighbors because they both practically live at their respective workplaces. But long before they were work neighbors, they were kids growing up next door from each other in a nearby suburb. The Ardwens and Nagueros were neighbors on Hazel Drive, a quiet River Ridge street situated just off the Mississippi River levee. Mark, the eldest of the three Ardwen offspring, remembers when Fredo and his little brother Juan moved into the neighborhood. How long have the three of you all known each other? Since the beginning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah since they were in diapers, yeah. That was a great neighborhood to grow up in. Yeah. We had a ton of kids in that neighborhood growing up. Here's Fredo. Yeah, a really good, a really good block. We're like a, right off the levee, so you know you could go get into trouble if you needed to. And both of our parents were mothers were great cooks. Here's Juan. Our parents are from Cuba, oh. and so they they lived originally, you know, in a house in Old Metairie. I had some uncle uh, uncle live in Old Metairie with probably like fifteen people in the family and then a lot of them moved by the airport so there's like you know that standard house with a bunch of Cubans living in it so she moved over there to Hazel that was one of her first houses um, probably I don't know what in the 70s and I guess the Ardwans next door were like the Americans (laughs) and so it was kind of that dynamic and uh, so you know Mark Miss Charlene would teach my sisters how to do meatloaf. I think we use your meatloaf recipe and we were doing the black black beans and, you know. Fried <laughs> pork and all that. Arroz con pollo yeah, and, so and those croquetas and, and those things. The deepest elements of New Orleans culture all came into play on Hazel Drive. Mark's drum set was a big draw, but Juan recalls being drawn to his mom's instrument, the guitar. My mom originally she grew up in Cuba and really was a great guitarist, you know, with the acoustic guitar. Loved the Beatles and some, you know, Harry Balafonte. Any holiday, the guitar always came out, and it's still to this day. Everybody will start kind of singing along, generally to Fleetwood Mac songs these days, but... <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. It's the same repertoire over and over, but yeah, so... She brought the guitar, and we always had that in the house, so we always were playing with the guitar, and Fredo kind of got really good at it. Juan plays piano too. So. Did you all ever like have a little band growing up? Were you just together? No, yeah. not together. No, no. Not together. Not together. Okay. Mark was a bit older. Yeah, right? I'm a little bit older than these yeah. guys. Just a little bit, not too much. While all three friends attended Archbishop Rummel High School in Metairie, their paths began diverging after graduation. Mark went to LSU, but quickly discovered college wasn't for him. 
The action and excitement of Semolina's restaurant open kitchen beckoned instead. He pursued his passion and graduated from Delgado's Culinary School. In 2011, Rouse's hired Mark as a prepared foods department manager, and he rose through the ranks, eventually becoming the corporate chef. Compared to his friend Mark, Fredo's path to a career in food was much more winding. I started at Southeastern and then uh, ended up at UNO for a very long time. I mean, it, it took me as long as a doctor usually. <laughs> I'm still, I still owe a fortune in, uh, in student land for, for nothing. <laughs> so that was like, after a while, I was like, why am I doing this? You know, I didn't, I, I just went to college. I, you know, I was kind of young. I didn't, I felt like it was something I needed to do, just being the son of an immigrant. You was know? there pressure from home? Were they like, you've got to it get that college some, education? It wasn't some pressure. <laughs> there was a lot of pressure. Yeah, it wasn't some. Well, how did food find you? Through music, actually, because I learned how to play guitar at 13 and 14 on my mother's, like, big clunky guitar, and then I wanted my own electric guitar, and she said, cool get a job <laughs> and I said um, okay so I'll cut grass and she also she found a job for me at the restaurant down the street washing dishes and so I just saved money to buy a guitar washing dishes and then just kind of be a part of the introduced to the restaurant world at that age was just kind of enlightening and, and fun it was just a whole nother experience you know I'd go to work on like Wednesdays and then stay there all night and hang out with older people and it was just a lot of fun and stayed in it and and as long as I needed musical instruments I needed work so that's how I paid for it so Fredo what were you doing in the music business out of town well um I'd always been kind of an aspiring musician uh, in my young 20s and whatnot and then moving to Chicago to be with some friends of mine after Katrina that I kind of became part of a bigger scene over there and it kind of became more for a second I was like oh wow maybe I can actually do this for a living. I had a few friends that were fairly successful and um, I kind of made a little bit of work from doing a lot of studio work as a guitar player or pedal steel player or touring musician for a while. Things that were slightly country to things that were very electronic I just kind of played and recorded with several different groups while living there. How do you give that up and come back here? Well, I ended up getting kind of pulled back into cooking at the same time, because, you know, like, it, it kind of ebbs and flows, the, the career, the music career. It's very freelance and, like, you know. So I ended up bartending, and through bartending, I started doing, like, this kind of food pop-up on the side, and the food pop-up on the side turned into a seasonal pop-up and then like it's just kind of like this really weird organic growth into being asked to be a chef of a friend of mine's bar that was opening in Chicago. It was a cocktail bar. They asked me to do like in a kitchen about the size of the studio, you know, like what I would do and I said I would do New Orleans food because I know that, you know. I'm not a professional chef at the time. And they said, yeah, fine, it's not about the food, you know, I just want to have a little bit of food for our cocktails, it's fine. We open up, the food ends up being incredibly successful because everybody loves New Orleans food. 
So, like, we get, like, all this press, and then all of a sudden I'm, like, winning awards in Chicago for being, like, Chicago's up-and-coming young chef. And I'm, like, not a chef. <laughs> in every interview, I, in my bio, in everything, I try to touch on the fact that I am actually a musician. <laughs> and, like, and nobody seems to care. They're, like, yeah, whatever. And I'm, like, no. I'm, like, <laughs> you don't understand. Like, I've been working, like, at the peak of my, like, musical career, I did recording for this artist from Berlin. Long story short, we got let go from the group. He made a huge contract from the record we did together, huge publishing deal. And he said, yeah, you know, we gotta move on. We got another guitar player, I'm sorry. But, you know, with the publishing deal, I was thinking about opening a restaurant in Berlin. If you and your wife would like to move here and open the restaurant, cause like, he loved my cooking, but I don't need you as a guitar player anymore. And I'm like, oh, oh. so. The replacement did look like Fredo, too. The oh. guy does. Oh, that's so, cruel. It is what it is. Yeah. It's, it made for a much better life, I think. Unlike Mark and his brother Fredo, Juan has found a career outside of the food business. But it wasn't for lack of trying. I have been at WDSU for 14 years as a media specialist, helping local businesses make you know fun local commercials. I did have a career in the food business for about probably 15 years as a busboy. <laughs> I've never elevated in the ranks. Um, and I've, I've followed Fredo uh, at several restaurants. Uh, followed Fredo to Chicago after Katrina because a lot of uh, our, you know, you know, his crew and a lot of folks in his kind of connected to his music world were in Chicago and they kind of took him in. I was right behind him. and lived in his apartment and I actually was like for the first few weeks sleeping in his bed and he was like you know uh, like being close and all but you need to go on Craigslist and order a bed brother right. I need you to get out the bed right and so I worked at restaurants up there and um, you know came back to jazz, to uh, New Orleans decided a year in I was like I was working at a magazine up there uh, uh, and um, called Stop Smiling and it was a great crew but after a year I was like you know what, I need to get back to New Orleans. This is gonna, that's kind of where I'm gonna land. Uh, it's like I'm working 24 hours over here in the restaurant and at the magazine. I got a job at Jazz Fest. And after Jazz Fest, I got a job at WDSU doing marketing. That's what I studied at LSU. It was the only thing that I did really well at. I would get like D's on accounting things and just always do well with marketing. I always liked that. We are across the street. Uh, so when Rouses came to the CBD, there was really no food options, and uh, Rouse's opened in the CBD, and I would just go there regularly. You know, I kind of helped them put TV commercials on it. So, you know, that is, a, uh, you know, they're a key partner for WDSU, and so I'm still in the food business. Today, Mark, Fredo, and Juan are all living and working in New Orleans. Although they didn't play music growing up together, in 2020, Juan, the pianist, had the opportunity to collaborate with Mark, the drummer, on a musical advertisement spearheaded by Rouse's marketing department. Featuring Rouse's employees performing a twist on a traditional holiday song, with their rendition focusing on the whiskey selection in the grocery stores. The song and accompanying music video regularly aired on TV during the 2020 Christmas season.
You can see and hear Mark on drums in the video, whereas Juan, the fifth Beatle, got kicked out of the band about a week in. I did a version at one point on my piano that was kind of rough. That was not, you know. Kind of rough. Yeah, that was kind of rough. And they completely corrected it. <laughs> Today, with Fredo running vowels across the street from Rouse's, the older Naguero brother is more likely to run into Mark than he is brother Juan. Do the siblings see much of each other these days? Here's Fredo. Yeah, I called him this morning. We've been trying to, like, catch each other for a coffee. My brother and I are pretty close. Yeah, I heard that you all talk every day. <laughs> he calls me at 8.30 to 9 every morning. To so. make sure you're awake? Well, no, no, <laughs> on, on the way in, as a, she, he, he drops off my goddaughter, uh, and uh, he'll drop her off and give me a ring, and then we'll just touch base for a little bit, see what's going on. He calls me too sometimes. He goes, <laughs> He's well, calling me talk. a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, you know, these calls are kind of funny too. They're all, they're quite sometimes they're kind of like pumping each other up. <laughs> right? Yeah, very motivational. Kind of like Juan listens to a lot of motivation things. He's done like a lot of leadership classes and stuff like that. So it's always kind of like, are you ready to grind? Are you ready? <laughs> what's the best way to sharpen a chef's knife? <laughs> chef's nice. You grind. It's not, yeah, it, it, it's, they're quite ridiculous. They're quite ridiculous. Sometimes I just hang up on them because it's the, the puns are too much of a stretch. But. Well, you know, I think uh, the food business and the marketing world, we need to have good attitude, you know? Yeah. Like at Rummel, they used to have on the wall, team attitude. <laughs> <laughs> We've come up with some good ideas, but sometimes, a lot, very often it's trash. Um, I do have a song to share. Oh, I'm so ready for it. Are you joking? I did. I did. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, I'm so excited. Oh, good grief. You could cut this if you don't want to, but oh, what are you no, gonna play it no, on your phone? No. This is a failed Super Bowl ad that I presented to Fredo and Mark and the folks on Ferret Street that never made air. Oh no. Please God no. <laughs> Market's grocery store. It's really cool. And it's really neat. That was Mark Ardwen, Rouse's Ferret Street market manager, along with his best childhood friends and neighbors, Chef Fredo Naguera from Val's, and Fredo's little brother, WDSU marketing exec, Juan Naguera. So, so, Fredo and Mark, your music career is officially over now. <laughs> Snowball or snow cone? What's the difference? And what's the big deal anyway? Stay tuned, and we'll explore that topic when we come right back.
I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this summer. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Snowball or snow cone? What's the difference? And what's the big deal anyway? For the record, the concept of this frozen treat can be traced back as far as the Romans, who added syrup to snow hauled from mountaintops nearby. Here in the U.S., in the 1850s, when commercial ice was first available in Baltimore, snowy balls of ice chips were covered with an egg custard for a frozen dessert. Samuel Burt is credited with creating the first snow cone machine in 1919. He sold his resulting creations at the Texas State Fair, where they continue to be a regular part of the offerings. But Samuel's snow cone was made from crunchy, hard bits of ice, rigidly formed into a ball shape meant to be eaten like an ice cream cone. Here in New Orleans, snowball vendors plied the streets with frozen blocks of ice on carts. The hand-held ice shavers they deployed resulted in a very nice snowy consistency, but the level of hygienics was questionable, to say the least. New Orleans machinist Ernest Hansen went to work in his spare time creating a machine that would shave the ice to perfection with no touching at all. That original machine still makes his now famous Hansen's Snow Blitz, which is owned and operated by Ernest's granddaughter, Ashley Hansen, right there at the family's original location on the corner of Chapatulas and Bordeaux in uptown New Orleans. When it's hot outside, treat yourself to a real New Orleans-style snowball. No matter the flavor, a snowball always makes for some good Louisiana eats. Snowball, my honey, don't you melt away. Cause your daddy like those dark brown eyes. Now, sonny, snowball my honey, smile at me each day. 
Is your daddy like those dark brown eyes? Mm, you my only sweetheart, little chocolate ball. I'll eat you up someday. In the heart of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum is La Galerie de Absinthe, an exhibit that showcases vintage absinthe bottles, spoons, fountains, and other accoutrements that surround the world of the elusive Green Fairy. This extensive collection is owned entirely by two brothers, Ray and B.J. Bordelon, whose interest in absinthe's history and collectibles became an obsession. The Bordelons joined us in our SoFab studio to talk about their avocation for absinthe and give us a closer look at some of the rarest articles in their exhibit. My name is Ray Bordelon, and my passion is absinthe. And I'm B.J. Bordelon, and since 2004, it has also been my passion. Well, for me, the absinthe journey started with a um, small antique store on Magazine Street um, with an absinthe spoon. I had always been a big collector of Victorian silver pieces. The Victorians had a serving piece for everything. It was absolutely ridiculous. I mean, a lemon fork, an oyster fork, a lettuce fork, ice cream fork, just something for everything. And when I saw this absinthe spoon with the holes in it, it was like, what is this used for? Is this the Victorian piece I've overlooked? What's the deal? And I started digging into it to find out it was for this drink. And the history of the drink started questioning where is it? How is it? Where can you get it? What's it about? Finding out it's illegal, that makes you a little more enticing as to where can I get it? What's more about it? And it all led to this liquor that was very misunderstood and got a bad rap. But this spoon piqued my interest, and that opened the floodgates. And what year was this? This was about, about year 2000, most probably. So back in the year 2000, absinthe was still illegal. Yes, so when was the first time that you actually got to taste absinthe? Well, I had connections with people, um, some cloak and dagger things of meeting some people in the alley behind St. Louis Cathedral at midnight to buy some contraband absinthe from Europe and are things you like that. Are, oh, no. are you exaggerating? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. <laughs> um, so there were little incidents like that, but um, I, I tasted some that was in the works right before it was legalized. There was one bar in particular that was serving absinthe that's in our museum now that um, they would light a green lantern in the window at night after 7 o'clock, and if the lantern was lit, they were serving absinthe. But you had another bartender, and you had to kind of be on the end with them, and they would pour you an absinthe from the makeshift fountain, and you might be sitting next to a policeman drinking a cup of coffee. But they would serve you absinthe, and it was illegal at the time. But they were getting it from Europe and from different places, contraband, so to speak. Oh, there, there is something very titillating about something <laughs> illegal. We even brought it back from France. We would go on trips to Switzerland and France, and I would bring it back in my suitcase or on my person usually and just claim it as two bottles of French liquor. BJ, you're four years later to the party. Your brother is already in total enthrall with his obsession. Yep. How do you catch it? Well, 2004, we went on a trip to Montreux, Switzerland, stayed for a week at the Montreux Palace on Lake Geneva. And by hook or by crook, my brother ends up finding two bottles of Kubler 53 absinthe in Old Town, Switzerland, and brings them back to the room. And every afternoon, we would sit on the veranda overlooking Lake Geneva and the Swiss Alps and have a couple of absinths and began talking about the history, which 
It is truly history in a bottle. And by the time the week was over, and I guess it was in May, by December, he gave me my first absent saucer glass and spoon, and it was game over. I was totally in. So you get that first spoon. How does the collection grow into, do you know how many pieces of absinthe, memorabilia, accessories? I'll put it uh, like this right now. I'll give you a little example. What we have in the museum is part. Right now, the underside of my bed is completely filled with absinthe glasses <laughs> that we did not have room for in the museum. My goodness. So there's a, you have your own museum at home, too. Basically, yes. And my brother has the same at his house, I think. Yep. Is there some special piece that you're waiting to find? <laughs> well, we've, just... well we've, we've found it. <laughs> there is a very, very rare commodity on the absinthe world, and it's called a uranium glass. Usually they were what's known as a torsade or a swirl glass. But they do make them in other forms, which one being a cordon glass. We have examples of both of them in the header of the exhibit. And why is that so rare? Well, they stopped making them around the turn of the century because it has centered uranium in the glass, which is radioactive. Now, if you put it under a black light, I could sit there all afternoon just looking at it. <laughs> uh, it it's like the glass is on fire. My brother ended up getting one many years ago, uh, would never tell me what he paid for it, but he had it, and I had to have one. So for many years I searched for it, and uh, I ended up finding one. Uh, it wasn't pristine, but it was a uranium glass. Do y'all ever um, quarrel over who gets a piece? Or no. is it sort of we've, finders, keepers, We've kind of come? had... Uh, I guess a gentleman's agreement, uh, a lot of the sources where we get our items, if, if I find out that he is watching something on an auction, I'll usually defray away from it. Uh, or the same if, thing with if him. we both want something, we'll, we'll, we'll settle on it and either bid it or, and, and share it, or if there's something that's two, we'll go in half and you buy one and I buy one. Yeah. So or, we, or we'll decide what is your maximum bid, what is your maximum bid, and whoever has the highest the other one will just bow out because they weren't going to bid that much anyway. But what a great, fun game for two grown-up brothers to play. It's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like a game, but it, it's also trying to gather as much history and information. And that is the whole purpose of the museum is to share with the public the history of this drink. And it's, it's always been for the cause. For the cause. <laughs> and it's all, like we say, for the cause because we get nothing out of it monetary. I mean, it, 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 but it's so much fun to meet people and to – put the correct history forth rather than all this, that it's not the villain it was made out to be. It had its own life going on. Um, and, and if you walk through the museum, you're going to see examples. Of, it was in art. It was in literature. It was in music. Um, so it, it, it permeated society. It wasn't just a drink to go get drunk in an alley and fall out. It, it inspired and, and it was part of the culture at the time. So now... For the cause, can we please have a tour? Please do. Okay. Absolutely. Um, down below here, something curious you're going to see. This is a, a woman's fan, and it's made, if you look at it, it's rats. It's rats? It's rats. rats. It's the, the cutouts are little rats' heads with the ears. If you see the eyes, see the little dots? Those are the eyes. 
Oh, I see it and now. And the tails are curled at the end. It's from a place in Paris called Rat Mort, is what that plate shows. And it was a big hangout for absinthe drinkers at the turn of the century for lots of these poets. And that's the name of it. It was called Rat Mort. Or the, the, dead, the dead rat. The dead rat, exactly. <laughs> so that's just a few little things. There's a postcard of it, its picture there. Um, but most of these things you see are all to do with the service of absinthe. The, the topets here, the little ringed... Um, vials here. This was used when a waiter would come to your table rather than put a whole bottle on the table and then you drink out of it and then try to figure how much did they drink. They would fill this topette with absinthe. Then you would pour. Each ring is one dose or one jigger, so to speak. So you could use this and when they would come in to charge you, they would know how many doses you drank by what was used out of the bottle rather than put a whole bottle on the table. Likewise, the saucers you see, or soucoupes as they call them, or tip trays, you can see they have the prices on them. All the drinks came with their price on the saucer and they would leave those on the table. So the waiter would come to your table and total up your saucers to know what you had drink and how many. It's like eating dim sum. And they yes. came with this, and the reason for the saucers were, was to keep your clothes from being soiled in case the, drip, the drink dripped or was sweating. And a lot of them were color-coded. Different restaurants had color coding, so if you knew a drink was two francs, it was a purple one, or if it was this color, that. And the same thing with the perogene or a match stripe. They contained a lot of advertisement for absent companies and all drinks. So nothing's new. Everyone wanted their name out there on everything that was being served in the bars. And what is the name of the sugar dishes? Because everything they seems call to have those a, a plateau. Is it plateau de sucre? And it was just they would put the sugar cubes on these plateaus to serve them to bring to the table for the people. And the difference in France in New Orleans, it seems to be from my research, is in France you were preparing your own drink. Here in New Orleans, it seems like the bartender would fix the drink for you. Because you don't find very many, I don't know of any particular absinthe spoons local to New Orleans. They seem to favor more the drip. Um, here's absinthe and music. Here's Victor Herbert, did a comic opera in 1904 called It Happened in Nordland. The big song in this thing was Absinthe Frappe. And that was the song that they said was contributed to absinthe being very popular in Louisiana and in the, the Western world here because this catchy little ditty was on everybody's tongue because of the, the, the words and it talks about an absinthe frappe. Here it is on a music box disc which we I have at the house which plays and it's, it's wonderful. And this, here is it on a piano roll, absinthe frappe. Here it is on an Edison cylinder for Edison cylinder player. So it was in everything. Ray and B.J. Bordelon, absinthe collectors and enthusiasts, speaking with us in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in 2016. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. 
Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of episodes are available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you're looking for a Poppy's pop-up drag brunch, join us on the last Sunday of each month through the summertime, June, July, and August at our home away from home, Tujac's Restaurant in New Orleans, French Quarter. You can make reservations and learn more by visiting tujacsrestaurant.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, and the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. And from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, writer Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.